Healthy Girl Kitchen. I am obsessed with Healthy Girl Kitchen. She's a vegan food blogger and health coach. I want to be her best friend. Invigorating conversations with leading experts. Danielle spends her days helping others improve their health. This is the Healthy Girl Podcast with your host, Danielle Keith. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Healthy Girl Podcast. I hope you all are having a great day today. I just made a recipe or I attempted to make a recipe. I was trying to make zucchini chips because I've been seeing them everywhere. It seems to be super trendy to make zucchini chips in the air fryer. So I wanted to make a recipe for the blog, but I just kept burning them. I made them too salty. They just did not turn out right. So If you're a food blogger or if you aren't a food blogger but you cook and then you ruin something, us food bloggers do it all the time as well. Um, It's rare for me to mess something up, but it happens. I'm so excited also because I ordered this bike from this brand FlexiSpot where basically it's an exercise bike, but it has a desk on top so you can work while riding the bike at the same time. So I'll update you guys on that, but I'm so excited to get it because obviously I'm, if I'm not making a recipe and aside from my morning walk or a workout, I'm sitting all day long working. So it'll be life-changing to be able to ride the bike and work at the same time. Also a few other things. I am on TikTok, so if you guys want more wellness tips, vegan recipes, plant-based meal ideas, I post a ton of other content on TikTok at Healthy Girl Kitchen, so if you're on there, be sure to follow me, and also if you're listening to this podcast episode today, be sure to screenshot it and upload it to your Instagram story, tag me and tag our guest of the day who I'm going to mention in just a minute. But yeah, I love when you guys screenshot it because then I know that you're listening. And also, it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review the podcast because that's how I know if you guys are enjoying it. So let me give you the health tip and the cooking tip of the day before we get into the episode. For the health tip of the day, I want to talk about flax seeds. Flax seeds are so healthy for you and everyone should be adding them into their daily diet. They're filled with omega-3s, plant protein, healthy fats, fiber, and I've been making this big fruit salad every morning and mixing in ground flaxseed and lemon, but you can add flax to anything. You can add it to smoothies, salads, Buddha bowls, you name it. As for the cooking tip of the day, I highly recommend adding matcha into your baked goods. This could also double as a health tip because matcha is super healthy for you. But when you add matcha powder into baked goods, it gives it a beautiful green color and it also adds a ton of nutrients. Matcha has 137 times more antioxidants than green tea, so it's a nutrient powerhouse. I actually just posted a vegan gluten-free matcha muffin recipe on my blog that's insanely good. They're moist, fluffy, light, and only 100 calories, so they're perfect for like a little after-dinner treat, a little snack if you're busy and on the go and just need to grab something while you're going to go run errands or if you got to pick the kids up from school or if you're in college, whatever it is, they're just like the perfect snack. And you can actually also eat them for breakfast because they're super healthy and again, You can find this recipe at healthygirlkitchen.com. I want to tell you about our guest for today because she is incredibly special. I interviewed Ariane Jones. She is a Canadian loser, Olympian, plant-based chef, and holistic nutritionist. She actually competed in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, 
and we dive deep into learning about her incredible life, including what it was like training as a competitive athlete, what it was like to train for the Olympics, body image struggles, breaking her back, becoming a plant-based chef, and most recently, her healing journey with chronic Lyme disease. I'm so excited for you all to hear her story. She's both beautiful on the inside and the outside, and I feel so honored to have been able to speak with her. So without further ado, let's welcome Ariane to the Healthy Girl Podcast. Hi, Ariane. Welcome to the Healthy Girl Podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm excited. I'm excited too. And for those listening, we literally just had like a 20-minute conversation. We were like, already diving deep into everything like she's asking me about my story we're talking about like our weddings being postponed and just like getting into a conversation so I we just had to like press record otherwise we could have kept talking forever it's so true but it's so much fun to be able to come on a podcast and like you said we just got into things really easily and to be able to talk to someone where we have so many similar life experiences and perspectives about food and life that you just get into it really easily. So I'm excited to uh, chat about everything today. Yes, and we we definitely have a ton in common with our holistic nutrition certifications and everything, but we definitely have some things not in common. You are an Olympian, which is something that not a lot of people can say. I think I, I want to start with your story because I think it's super unique and You've just been through a lot leading up to where you are now. So can you kind of take us back to your childhood and how you grew up? Yeah, so I'm Canadian and I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. And why that's an important fact instead of just being like, this is where I grew up, it's that Calgary had the Olympics in 1988. And so that's the reason that I got started in luge, which is the sport that I'm an Olympian in. Um, Because when I was about... 12 years old, I went to a summer camp at Canada Olympic Park where all the Olympic facilities are and got to try all of these Olympic sports. Um, I was a really pretty active kid. We did lots of adventures as a family. We did lots of traveling as a family, which I'm just so grateful for those experiences. And I went to this camp and got to try all these different sports. And I loved luge. I thought it was super fun. It was like very fast tobogganing. And I thought it was really fun. And then me and my best friend got, they said, hey, you guys are pretty good. You should come back and do this more. Then I went home to my mom and I was like, mom, I'm going to do luge. She was like, what's luge? That's so funny. Yeah, it is kind of random. But I mean, I guess, you know, somewhere like Canada, where it's more like focused on winter sports, you had the chance to experience that. So, okay, so you go to camp. You're like slowly becoming a luge expert. (laughs) What's next? Yeah, so I got started in luge. Um, At that point in my life, I had lots of different kind of sports and activities I was doing. And slowly, as I got older, kind of like in through junior high, you know, I got busy with all the things. And so my, my parents said, okay, well, you have to start choosing here. Like you can't do everything anymore. You're too busy. So what's gonna fall by the wayside? And I just like year after year kept choosing luge over everything else and choosing that. So as it grew and expanded time, I kept choosing that and pushing all the other activities by the wayside. And so by the time I was kind of like end of junior high, heading into high school, I'd made the junior national team, which meant that I got to start going on trips to Europe 
without my parents with this sports team, which was very exciting and very fun, especially because my best friend was with me. Um, so that was pretty exciting to be able to go do our sport in France together um, and have just so many adventures over there. We grew up, I feel like really quickly, um, just in a different way if you're kind of 15 in Europe. And if you want laundry done, well, you better go figure out how a laundromat works and how to speak the language and how to call collect home. You know, we didn't have any FaceTime. So I learned so many cool lessons. And then by the time I was in high school, kind of progressing through the ranks and through the program, I went to a specific sports school because at that point I was traveling around Europe about three months a year and then just training such huge hours um, when I was home. So going to a school that allowed me to balance those both those endeavors was super, super grateful for that because it allowed me to do both. And then once I was 19, that's where you make the jump between senior national and junior national and made that jump onto the national team at that point. Wow, that's crazy. So at this point, you're a teenager you're training, you're an athlete, you're in this special school. Did you know that your goal was to be in the Olympics at that point? So not when I was younger. I think a lot of people have those sports stories where they're like, I was five and I knew I wanted to go to the Olympics. And that's definitely not my story. I just really loved this sport. I was a teenager. I thought it was so fun. I clearly was passionate about it and I wanted to keep making the teams because you have to train so hard. So it wasn't just a fun thing. Like we were working so hard and saying no to parties and social gatherings because you had a race or a training. So we sacrificed a lot. But I think I was just kind of focusing on still the next step. Like first I want to make junior national team. Then I want to make national team. I kind of wasn't looking a hundred steps ahead. I was looking at that next big goal until uh, the Olympics actually in 2010, which were in Vancouver. So they were a home Olympics. And at that point I was 18. And so I actually got to be a forerunner for the Olympics, which means that since it was a home games before the Olympics, they send down the first competitor, they send someone down call a forerunner. And that means you're going down just to check to make sure the timing and the camera and the lights work so that if there's a problem, it's on you and not someone actually competing. And because it was my home track, I got to be that person. And so being at the Olympics, but not competing, but just seeing what that was like and people competing for their country in that way and the environment of the Olympics, that really, really sparked it for me that thought, okay, I was kind of at a pivot point at that point. I was 18, just graduated from high school. All of my friends were going off to universities and I had to make the choice. Do I take the normal route and go to university and live in res and live that fun life? Or do I say no to that and pursue trying to make the national team, trying to go to the Olympics? And so that was my spark of a moment where I decided to take that path. Wow. Can you go back a little bit and tell us about the, the intense training that you had to go through? I guess once I was, you know, on the national team, we were training. It was very much my full-time job. Um, I got paid for it to be my full-time job. We were training five, six days a week, five to seven hours a day. It was tons of weight training because twofold, one, you need to be really strong to be able to pull a fast start at the top of the loose track. And two, I needed to put on a lot of size 
because I am a much smaller, it's hard to tell, of course, so for everybody on just listening on a podcast, I am much smaller than any of my other competitors. And so I had to put on weight since luge is a gravity sport. So I was doing tons of weight training to put on muscle mass for weight to help me in my sport. And then as well, it was tons of, you know, swimming, biking, playing floor hockey, playing soccer for overall agility, agility training, sports specific training, like you name it, we did it for training, I think. And it was absolutely a full-time job. I was 10 out of 10 exhausted constantly. And it was a ton of hard work. It sounds like it. I, I'm t- I get tired after like a 30-minute walk. <laughs> well, sadly, I guess we'll talk about that after with my transition on like getting mysteriously sick as I do now too, which is a very humbling transition. We'll add that as a little like foreshadowing. Yes, no, we will definitely dive into that. But um, in terms of your training, I mean, you had to put on weight, as you said, you were smaller. Were you just, I mean, eating all day long? I can't imagine the amount of volume you had to eat. Yes. And so at the beginning of my luge career, I, of course, we talk now, now I'm certified in holistic nutrition, plant-based chef. I have all this knowledge about food. I had zero knowledge about food at this point. And Unfortunately, a lot of the people I was being surrounded with also had zero knowledge about food. And so I was just being told, just go eat as much as you can. Like, go have more burgers. Go just eat more pasta and more chicken. My best friend and I, on Fridays, after we were done training for the week, we would go to Dairy Queen, which is like a Canadian ice cream store, and we would buy an ice cream cake, and we would have them write our names on it. And we would sit there and we would eat the entire cake. Just oh us two. God. Which is just insane to think about now on many levels. On like talk about inflammatory food choices. But we would eat ice cream cakes dedicated to ourselves. And tons of whey protein shakes that made me feel sick every time I drank them. And I was just told, drink more, drink more, eat more. So I pretty much... At that point in my career, before I knew anything about nutrition, before I got injured, before any of those steps, I didn't actually even know what it was like to be hungry because I constantly had to eat past the point of being full just so that I could keep enough size on my body with how much we were training. There are exceptions, but in general, women are trying to lose weight and tone up. How did this affect your mindset when you were being told the exact opposite? It was incredibly hard mentally on two reasons. I feel like my mind was being pulled in two directions. So on one side, I was being, and and it's so true, most women in sport, women in general, and then especially women in sport are told get leaner, get skinnier, lots of eating disorders on that side. And I was being told the opposite, get bigger, put on more size. But the commonality between both of those things as women, is we were all being told what you are is not enough. What you are is not right. Your body as it is right now is not right. And that goes on both sides of the spectrum, on the sports telling women to get skinnier, on the sports. For me, I was internalizing it. I was getting a lot of messaging as your body is not right for this sport. Either change it or you're never going to make it. You might as well quit. Why are you even here? Your body's not right. So 
I was getting a lot of messages already of like, what you look like is not enough, which was definitely damaging to me. And also I used it as fuel, but that's not a nice message to get. And so, but on that one side, I then wanted to put on size because I wanted to be good at my sport. This sport that I was so passionate about, I wanted to be the one standing on the podium. I wanted to be the one on the Olympic team. And I knew to be that person, I had to get heavier because my sport is a gravity sport and I was just at too much of a disadvantage. So on one hand, I'm wanting that because I want to stand on the podium. And on the other side, I have all of our societal messages telling me to be lean and toned and small and that having big muscles is not feminine. And so I constantly felt that pull in my head of like, I want to be bigger so I can be great at my sport. Ah, I don't want to be bigger. I don't fit into normal jean sizes anymore because my legs are too strong. Wait, I really want to be like mini, like the heptathletes over there. But because they look so cute in the gym. But yet, if I'm mini, I'm not going to be great at my sport. So that jumble in my head um, was constant for the 10 years I competed. Yeah, that's why I asked you about it. Because I know I was just thinking for me, I would probably have the same problem. I obviously can't even begin to put myself in your shoes. But that's why I wanted to bring that up is there's always like that that societal message that we're getting. But then also, for you, you were passionate about this sport and wanted to be good at it. And I'm sure this was also a little while ago. So there wasn't that narrative yet of like being strong is sexy and and to love your body no matter what but you're you know you're also being given the message that you're not enough and that you have to change so I can imagine how difficult that was for you it was and I think I'm actually doing the most unraveling of it now in my life because I didn't have the tools then to process it very well And now as you get older, as I've gone through different hardships and adversity and I have new tools, it's actually now that I'm starting to look back on those times and having to unravel some of those patterns that I formed in your head. If you have years of people telling you you're not enough, you start to have some very messed up pathways in your head that you have to correct. So what advice would you have? Let's say there's an athlete out there, maybe they're in high school, maybe they're in college, maybe they're someone who is in in your position, Um, you know, even if they're not competing at the Olympic level, do you have, you know, maybe some advice to someone in that situation? I would say one huge shift that I made near the end of my career and mostly now is that as we kind of talked about, we're now entering more of an age of strong is beautiful. And I would even just take all the image out of it for a second. And instead of looking at your body as this part's too muscular or this part's too skinny, write a list or make a mental list of all of the things your body helps you do. And instead of all the things you can't do or the things you don't look like or the things you do look like. So instead of saying, okay, I'm so much stronger than all my friends and I don't fit into these labels and all of that, sit there and think for a college athlete, my legs, super grateful for their strength because they helped me make X team. They helped me score seven goals last week. My arms are super strong and I can paddle this kayak for 10 days that brought me to these beautiful coastlines. And instead, I think we need to focus on what our bodies are helping us do and accomplish, which is incredible. 
I like that. I love that. And I think even if you're not an athlete doing something like that, where you just write a list of, you know, the amazing things that your body does, the things that you like about yourself. I actually watched this YouTube video where um, they did this experiment where they asked women to write down or say things that they liked about their bodies. And, and a lot of them couldn't even think of anything, which was really sad. And I, and I think that's a good exercise to kind of go through every day because as a woman, as we were saying, there are so many societal pressures. We now have social media where it's really tough because we're always comparing ourselves to other women and other people we see online. So just taking that time out of the day to recognize the beautiful things about yourself and and the unique qualities that you have, I think that can be super, super helpful for your mental health. I agree. And it doesn't have to be a big practice. It can just be every day writing down five things you're grateful for that your body did for you. It got you out of bed. It grew a child if you're a mother. It helped you walk five miles with your best friend today and you got to catch up. When you focus on what your body is helping you do every day, it makes those smaller things of how I look feel almost vain. And I realized that looking back at the end of my career, I thought, now I'm well aware of checking my self-talk in my head. And I didn't, I wasn't aware enough of that in sport. And I look back and I think, okay, there I was asking my body, push harder, train harder, be the best, do more pull-ups, lift more weight, get up earlier, stay there longer, like fight, push, do this. And then at the same time, I was also in my head saying, oh God, you're not enough and your arms are too big and your this looks like this and you don't fit into this group. And so I was asking my body to perform at a high level while also bullying it at the same time instead of sitting there and being compassionate towards my body and saying, oh my God, like thank you for putting this strength on. You are incredible and I know that took 100 hours. Thank you for doing this. And I think that applies, you know, of course applies, like we said, to women in college and university sport or women in general. But I think in any part of your life, when you're asking your body to work hard and chase a goal or be a mom, any of those pieces, if you just take the time to realize and be compassionate, be like, thank you for doing all these things today, it can be a pretty powerful shift after a while. Since you have to pull your own weight in the sport of luge, was the goal for you to be gaining muscle mass or fat or both? So luge, right? I like to give people the analogy. For people that don't know what luge is, it's like a big giant frozen water slide down a mountain, gravity sport. As an analogy, if you're at the top of a hill and you have a bowling ball and a golf ball and you were to push them both down, obviously the bowling ball is getting to the bottom first. I am always the golf ball in this story. So I just needed more size. So A, it was putting on a ton of muscle mass because I wanted the weight that I put on to be functional. I wanted it to help me. So of course, the upper, since lose, you start with your upper body. Um, The upper body strength was very functional to having a faster start. I did put on a lot of muscle mass on my legs and on my butt, mostly because you can put on a lot of muscle mass and weight there. Um, So that wasn't as functional. I don't use my legs to run at the start of luge, but it was a great place to put size on. But at the same time, they did luge is a bit weird. And again, it's the opposite of other women's sports, which played into my mind game. Where In luge, you actually don't want to be super lean. 
you need to have a little cushion of fat percentage on your body because as you're laying on the sled, you want to be relaxed and have your body absorb the bumps down the track and that builds speed for you. And the little layer of fat you have on your body actually almost acts like suspension on your sled if you're relaxed enough. So again, I was facing the all I wanted was to be this lean. If I was going to be strong, I was like, well, I might as well look like a bodybuilder type lean athlete. But then, because that's more socially acceptable. But then again, on the other hand, being told like, hey, your fat percentage is getting too low. Eat more. You need more for the season. So it was both, but it was very closely monitored. We had tons of testing we did every month to see, are you putting on weight? Are you putting on fat versus muscles? It was really monitored to figure out what the best ratio for your body would look like. So you went to both the Olympics and then also the World Cup, correct? Yeah. So the way a season works is in Luge, there's nine World Cups in a season and then either world championships or the Olympics. So in the three years where there's not an Olympics, there's a world championships. And during an Olympic year, there's no world championships. And so we would travel the winter season from about end of October to March. There's nine world cups, about one a week all over the world. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I know nothing about that. Obviously, you're an expert in it. I know absolutely nothing about how that works. So, okay. I know at one point you broke your back. Can you kind of explain when that happened, at what point, and how that kind of changed your whole life? Yes. So in 2014, I competed at the Winter Olympics in Russia in Sochi. And obviously, massive goal. Got there. I'm at the Olympics. Life is good. I go through a season of training and then the next winter, so December 2014, I then in a in a World Cup, I actually won my very first medal and I got to stand on that podium, which just was this huge moment for me because my whole life, like we talked about, people had told me, why are you here? You don't belong in this sport. You're never going to make a team. You're never going to win a medal. You're never going to go to the Olympics. Like that just isn't in your future you might as well quit. So to get those two moments and know that I did that was life-changing and huge. So I'm thinking December 2014, like, okay, life is actually kind of good right now. Like I seem to have this whole training thing under control. I'm mentally in a good space. I feel like I've hit my stride. And then that next summer while I was training in the off season, I was in the gym And I was working out and I was doing this exercise and all of a sudden I felt my whole neck seize up and I had this gut feeling where my body was like, stop right now, something feels wrong. And so I stopped and kind of went to the side and stretched for a while and I was like, "Uh, I'm done my workout for the day. This feels weird. So I told my coaches and my physio, they looked at it and just said, yeah, that is weird. Like your whole neck has seized up. And honestly, When you're training that hard, that kind of happens to most athletes, let's say like once or twice a season, which is not a great thing. And I definitely have opinions on that now, but that was the reality. And so they were just like, go home, come in tomorrow and we'll see how you feel. And by the time I went home that night, I, my body had seized up from my neck to my waist, like to my hips and all the muscles had seized up and I couldn't even get my like t-shirt over my head because I couldn't move like that. And so I go to the gym, to the physio the next day, and I can barely walk. And I'm like, can barely walk without crying. 
And at that point, of course, my physios recognized that something was pretty seriously wrong. And so sent me to get like emergency MRIs and look at what was going on. And then just said, just go home and chill for the weekend while we wait for the results. And chill is not what I did. I mean, to be honest, I can't even remember that weekend because I was in so much pain. I truly don't remember it. And then I came in on Monday, saw my sports doctors, and he said, you actually broke your back. And that was how I found out I broke my spine. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy also that you had like that gut instinct in your workout to stop because imagine you could have hurt yourself further because I'm sure you were pushed a lot as an athlete and in the gym, just push to keep going, even if it hurt, just to keep keep on training. So that's really interesting that you did have that gut instinct to kind of stop and listen to your body. And I think, interestingly enough, before this point in my career, I had definitely been shoving down my gut instinct for a while and was just because I was taught to. Every time I'd speak up for myself, it was just be a good soldier and listen to what we have to say and listen to coaches and trainers and all this. And there was really no room for me to speak up about my body or my needs or my thoughts or my ideas. And it was like in that moment, that gut whisper was no longer a whisper. And it was this super loud, like, you need to stop now and listen. And what's interesting about that is through the next eight months of healing, of trying to come back from my back injury, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was I relearned how to listen to my gut again. And it came through that process. That's amazing. So you find out you break your back. What was that healing period like? Like how long did it take to heal? This also was the point where you, you know, kind of sparked your interest in nutrition too, right? Yeah. So I find out I've broken my back and my neurosurgeons tell me that I have 12 weeks of doing nothing but laying and physio. And then they can tell me if I'm allowed to do my sport again. So in those 12 weeks, not only have I lost all of my identity as an athlete and training, but I can no longer do any of the things that make me happy, like hiking and biking and swimming and all those activities. Um, I go to physio every morning, then I cry in the ice bath, and then I go home and lay for the rest of the day. And after about a few weeks, when it was more kind of like pain under control and you're not just surviving anymore, I realized I had the thought, of course, I'm facing a lot of adversity. A friend of mine um, who's an Olympic cross-country skier, Chandra Crawford, she gave me a book called The Obstacle is the Way. And I, it's one of my favorite books of all time now. I read it and I went, okay, I have a choice here on how I'm going to move forward. And I truly did a 180 on my life in everything from mindset. Up until then in sport, I'd been viewing mindset as something where you only kind of met your sports psychs when you were in a panic moment and you needed them to calm you down so you can perform, very band-aid therapy and thought, hey, well, if I can lay for 12 weeks, I can't do X, Y, and Z. What I can do is learn to meditate. So I learned to meditate. I read all the books about meditating and sport. And so I completely changed my mindset. It changed my perspective on what was important and what wasn't. It gave me a super crash course in listening to your gut instinct again and using that to guide your choices which I learned really quickly when I listened to my gut, things went well. And when I did not listen to my gut, things did not go well. So that became pretty clear and pretty apparent very quickly to me. I completely overhauled my team because at this point, 
you mentioned, solo sport, but I was on a team of athletes, but they all left for the winter, kind of come September, and I'm still in this very rehab zone, and they all lift, so I made what I call like my team Jones, which is something I find so relevant when you're facing any kind of adversity. I've realized now post-sport, it's still helpful, and I looked at my life, and I said, who do I need to be on my team, my kind of board of advisors? So I chose from a professional side of things, who is running my training program, who is my physio, and I need people that are willing to think outside the box with me, enough of trying to put me and my body in the box like you did before. I'm done with that. I don't fit in that box. I'm doing this. If I'm coming back, I'm doing this my way. And so I found physios that matched that. I found the doctors that matched that. I created that team. But then also who needed to be on that team was my support team of who are the friends you can call crying, but you don't know why you're crying, that are going to lift you up. Who are the people that are going to say, you can do this, I believe in you. You know, like we said, I wasn't getting that from coaches, that's for sure. So I had to find other people who are going to fill those spots for me. And as critical as it is to figure out who's on your team, it was also important to understand who wasn't on my team, whose energy, voices, things they're saying to me is just not acceptable right now and starting to create those boundaries. And then, yes, this is the time I did a 180 on food and nutrition. And I thought, if I'm going to come back, I better feel my body in a way that's going to heal me and help me thrive. And I started working with a holistic nutritionist and she rocked my world. I did a 180 on everything. No more Dairy Queen ice cream cakes, no more whey protein. I went more plant-based. I went you know, no more dairy, no more sugar, no more inflammatory, nutrient dense. And I could not believe the difference it made. Not only in my healing journey, but my energy was better. My mood was more stable. When I ended up coming back six and eight months later, I was stronger than I'd ever been before in every exercise. I had some of the fastest starts in the entire world. My body composition, I had the most muscle mass and the least fat percentage that I'd ever had just by changing my diet. And it completely blew my mind how all these pieces work together. And eight months later, after a hell of a grueling road, as an understatement, I came back to win uh, my first ever gold medal. That's amazing. That's like my favorite part of your story, because I'm sure in the beginning when you broke your back, you had the doctors who were like, well, I'm sorry, you're never going to compete again. You know, you can kiss your dream goodbye. I'm really sorry. You know, you're just kind of destined to never play your sport again. So I'm sure that also messed with your head having, you know, medical professionals tell you that. But then you coming out on the other side and deciding for yourself that, you know, that wasn't the end for you and and the thing that you were most passionate about, but also that you were going to put your health in your own hands and kind of be your own doctor in a way and do what's best for you and heal holistically. I mean, I feel like that can be applied to so many other people and so many other categories and aspects of people's life. But I love that you turned it around for yourself and you didn't take no for an answer. Yeah, definitely. And there's a few kind of key lessons through that point. And of course, when I was in it, trust me when I say I was not grateful for any of that. But coming out of it now on the other side of it, I now look back to that 
And I am grateful that it happened because I wouldn't trade the lessons I learned for anything. You know, I learned, I'd learned all along in my sport to focus on what I can control, not what I can't. That came into play, that you're always in control of your attitude. No matter what, you get to choose how you show up every day. That became really important. Learning to trust my gut and not just listen to it, but lead with what it was saying and to start to value my own voice over other people's voices about me and my body and my journey, learning how to create that team around me, learning about nutrition and that how you're fueling your body is absolutely everything. All of those pieces are tools that I use now in my life. And I'm so grateful to have learned those. And there was a lot of fear to overcome. Like you said, when I wasn't sure if I could do my sport again and I got the green light, where doctors said, okay, you can try, but we have really no idea if it's going to work or if it's going to be too much pain or if it's going to this and that. And I just remember like, I mean, even the doctor's appointment where I had to ask, like, if I crash, will I paralyze myself? Like I couldn't even get those words out. I felt like I was going to vomit. That's how much fear and unknown there was. But just learning on that journey of coming back, like there was a lot of fear and I just had to break it down into small fear chunks I could handle. So a lot of people coming back, you would just, when it's time to hop back on your sled on the track, they would say, well, why don't you just take a run from the top? Get back on your sled. You know how to do it from the top. And I had so much fear that I had to say, nope, I'm actually going to get on my sled and take a run from like a quarter of the way down the track where the 10-year-olds slide. And having to get over the like shame and embarrassment of getting on your sled at the last four corners with a kitty start, but that's how I had to get over that first piece of fear. And then I went higher and just that next piece of fear and just taking off a small chunk of it every day. Yeah, that's so powerful. And also a side note, like the fact that you were told you weren't good enough, you weren't big enough, as you said, you were like the smallest one on your whole team. So the fact that you won gold and I mean, broke your back while doing the whole thing, and still coming out on top. I mean, you're now a role model, I'm sure, for so many girls, so many women, so many athletes who are told that, you know, they need to change or be different in order to be the best. Just the fact that you came out on top and I feel like you're just, you're such a role model. It's awesome. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I guess it feels like if going through all of that was hell, And so if having gone through it and sharing my story can help any other females athletes or just females in general understand that like they are enough just inherently and just to trust that, I guess that if I can help any others, that makes it all worth it. Totally. And I think that goes for anything. So you learn to eat healthy. You're kind of on this like nutrition kick. You're uh, you're like getting into eating healthy and taking care of yourself and you're doing well, but then your health kind of takes a downwards turn. Yeah. Can you get into that a little bit? So I feel like my life is just a constant stream of curveballs. So again, I then come back from my back injury and I win a gold medal. And once again, I'm like, life is good. Things are really back on track again no pun intended. And then a few months later in that off season where we're doing dry land training, I started 
getting a lot of really weird mystery symptoms. So first, I just got the most crushing fatigue. I'm talking, I'm falling asleep on the gym floor. I have to pull over on my five-minute drive home from the gym to fall asleep. I know being tired and working hard, and this is different. And so my trainers say, like, okay, maybe you just went, you went through a lot of rehab, a lot of that. You're just tired. Take a week off. Just go to the mountains. You're happy there. Go sleep. So I go to the mountains, and I slept for 18 hours a day for a week and came back more tired. So that's starting to be a red flag for me. And then I start getting these, I called them episodes. And it felt, the first one started, I thought that I was getting the flu. And I felt achy and horrible and like foggy. And I thought, okay, I'm getting the flu. Ate a bunch of good food. Went and had a great like 14 hours sleep. Woke up the next day. Didn't feel great. Ate a bunch of good food. Had a good sleep. And then the next day woke up and felt good. And I was like, okay, cool. I was getting sick and I did the right things and I beat it. Yay me. So I go back to training for the week. And then the next week it happens again. Same pattern. And then I get better again. So I go about a week of training and then it happens again. And by the third week, I'm like, okay, I'm not getting over the flu here. Like something's happening. And after each of these episodes, A, the episodes are getting worse. So now they're coming with scary symptoms like nerve pain down my arms, um, crippling brain fog where I can't think straight. I like forget directions to get to places I know how to get. I forget words. I couldn't write a one sentence email to save my life. Um body pain is getting worse exhaustion is getting worse and we started calling it the nerve flu because i would get all this nerve pain and central nervous system pain and anxiety and manic energy yet fatigue and i couldn't take a deep breath anymore so the episodes are getting worse and i'm also not bouncing back from them anymore and so that's when i start seeing different doctors to figure out what's going on and while i had a like a key physio in my corner that really, really believed me. And I had a key sports doc that said, okay, I can see something's really wrong here. I just don't know what. I also had trainers and coaches say to me, A, well, I guess some athletes just can't cut it. And this was three months after winning a gold medal. And also tell me that I should go see a sports psych because I'd gone crazy pretty much. And I was so scared. And I'm telling coaches and trainers, like, I'm really scared. Something's super wrong here. Please listen to me. And that's what I'm getting back from them. Now, originally, if it were me, I maybe would have thought that it had something to do with my back injury. Did your head go there at all? So it really initially it did with especially physios where they were like, okay, you know, especially where it was like, okay, I can't take a, f- a full breath. And they were like, oh gosh, maybe now something's happening up in your T-spine. Like maybe something that. But one of the first steps we did was to do some more imaging on my spine to see had anything changed. And right away we saw that nothing had changed there and, you know, got imaging of my lungs and they were like, no, they look great. So they'd ruled out any musculoskeletal issues as a first step. And so after we'd ruled that out, that's when everybody kind of either threw their hands up in the air or called me crazy or just didn't really know where to go from there. That must have been super frustrating. And I feel like for anyone suffering from a chronic problem, being told that, you know, you're making it up or it's in your head or you're wrong, you know, you look okay on the outside, that can be super 
just invalidating. I know I was telling you before we we started recording that I used to have chronic chest pain and you know doctors just they kind of wrote me off and didn't really know what to tell me so I can only imagine you know that's that was just like a a small part of you know what you went through but um so what was that time period what did that look like between you having all of these awful episodes as you call them to then being diagnosed with Lyme disease so it was a four-year window wow so all of these episodes are happening. They're getting worse. I'm getting worse. It's horrible to be told you're crazy and have people not believe you. And yet I am so sick that I don't even have the energy to fight for myself. And so I end up just like fading out of sport and retiring and am super sick still and decide at this point, I still knew I loved nutrition and all of that. So I decided to go to school to get all of my holistic nutrition so for the next year, pretty much all I do is like go to school, read nutrition books and sleep. And I'm using all this nutrition knowledge on myself and it is helping. And then I start seeing like doctor after doctor after doctor who most of the doctors say, I don't know. And no, you don't have an autoimmune. So not sure. See you later. And I'm getting so many unknowns. I fall into a practice of MDs who are also functional medicine doctors. And they're of course seeing like you have no more vitamins and minerals in your body. Your adrenals are burnt out. You, your hormones are a mess. All of these pieces. So we start solving for those pieces. And everyone at this point is just thinking like, oh, you just overtrained yourself. Which gut instinct, my gut was like, no, that's not the answer. But doing all of those pieces, of course, balancing your hormones, getting nutrients inside of you, like they did start making me feel better. I was by no means okay still. Like all I could do for physical exercise, I had no exercise tolerance anymore. I could go for like a 30 to 40 minute walk and that's it. Anything more than that. And I was smashed for five days. So when I say I started to get better through that year, I mean, I started to be able to like do groceries again and not be smashed and have a shower and maybe see one friend a week to talk to them plus doing school like I was still so far from being better or okay in any scope of it but at least it was progress and then at that point so for those two years where I'm just studying I'm starting to work with some other athletes one-on-one starting to feel slowly better and no one no doctors can tell me what's going on so I'd kind of just resorted myself to okay, maybe this is my new reality and nobody knows why. And that's actually when I went to culinary school in New York. I, at that point, was fascinated with food. It was shaping my life. It was shaping other people's lives I'm working with. And I kind of was at this point, I wanted more knowledge. I wanted more hands-on knowledge. I had also this nutrition brain knowledge. I wanted the food knowledge. Uh, a friend of mine told me about this incredible program in New York. And I was feeling very screw you to this illness I was having and these crazy symptoms. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to pretend you're not there and I'm just going to get on with my life anyways and move to New York and go to school. So that's when I went to culinary school. And I, in those years too, I got really good at wearing the mask on, look at me, I'm fine. I can still do this stuff. I'm okay because I couldn't handle being called crazy again. And what was I going to tell people? Yeah. Oh, right now I have burning pain down my arms and like it's kind of hard to see out of my one eye and you know no I can't hang out on the weekend oh sorry I'm busy when I'm really just like debilitatedly exhausted for two days straight and have brain fog I just couldn't risk being called crazy again so I 
put the mask on and lived my life in New York. And don't get me wrong, it was an incredible experience being there. And I loved school so much. And I learned so much. And then I came home and I still, I could tell my symptoms were getting worse, but I just wasn't willing to acknowledge them because I was mad at it. And I was mad at the situation. And so I just kept pretending they weren't there and putting on more masks and taking more Advil. And then I got home back to Canada after culinary school and interning at a food magazine. And then I had those huge episodes come back again. And I had the biggest episodes I'd had in years, one every three days for probably a month. And I was just shattered, broken. And that's the point when I then went back to the functional medicine and MDs that had helped me get to some point and I had a good relationship with them now and they knew it all. And I practically called her crying and said like, you have to help me. Like something is so wrong. You, you please help me. And so at that point, that's when she went back and thought about it for a long time and came back to me and said, I think we need to do like, just, just put Lyme on the table for a minute. Like just take the test. And I was like anything. I'm willing to do anything at this point. So I took the test. I mean, it took a few months to get back because we used Armin Labs in Germany because that was the only one at that point she trusted on not getting false negatives. And so in March of 2019, that's when the results came back. And I found out that I had Lyme disease and the co-infections that go with it. Wow. That is just crazy. So you get the results back that you're positive for Lyme. I'm sure it was mixed emotions. Like on one hand, just relief that you finally have an answer and like knowing that you're not just crazy. I mean, you knew that, but to then tell other people like, look, like I wasn't making it up. This is something that's really real. But then also being like, oh shit, what am I going to do about this? Exactly. So I went to the doctor's appointment with at that point I almost had I was like apathetic to the whole situation. I almost went in being like, ugh, another doctor's appointment where I'm gonna go in and they're gonna tell me, nope, it's not this. I don't know where to go from here. So that was kind of where I had reached. And then I went in and she said, You have chronic Lyme and you have these like five co infections and this is the reason you're so sick. And now we found it. And I was just totally in shock. And then exactly that, multiple feelings, like tons of relief. I wasn't crazy. I had this thing to tell people I'm not crazy. Look at me, which is so relieving. But then on the same time, it was like, well, you don't, you don't want to have Lyme, obviously. And it's this very confusing thing with like no direct path forward. But yet my sister put it really poetically when I told her and she said, yes, but now your enemy has a name and it has a face. Like, you know what you're battling. And you just can get, you're down just now one path instead of, it felt like I was looking at this wall of puzzle boxes and I was, I had symptoms from like one puzzle piece from seven boxes and I was trying to put this puzzle together and it just wasn't working and which box do I pull off the wall and that's what it felt like and all of a sudden it was like someone gave me one of the puzzle boxes off the wall and was like, here you go. And yes, it was one of those crazy complicated puzzles with thousands and millions of pieces to figure it out but at least it was one box it felt like yeah so so now it's been about a year and a little bit since you've been diagnosed what has treatment been like so as i guess an overarching way to start about explaining it 
when we found out we had Lyme and we knew like you've had this for at least four years, um, my doctors I was working with said, yeah, I don't think it makes any sense to go down this antibiotic route for you because of all the science that we're seeing that may help when it's, when you, you know, it's right away. You saw a tick, you found out you had Lyme, but with me, they were like, all of your symptoms are chronic. It's in your central nervous system. It's in your cardiac system, your respiratory system. We don't think antibiotics haven't shown to be effective on chronic Lyme. And also it's just going to ruin your gut. And my gut was one system that was working really well because I'd been eating super well for the last few years. And so she was like, I think we need to take a more holistic route. And of course that matched with everything I was thinking. We didn't take antibiotics off the table, but we were like, we need to start on this route first. And so the plan of attack was actually at first to start by, she was like, we need to rebuild your whole body. Like I was so broken at that point. She was like, you have no more vitamins and minerals in your body again, because of course my immune system was just like ramping through all of that good food I'm going through because if I was a boat, like I had a gaping hole in my boat. And so it was getting vitamins and minerals back in me, getting my immune system boosted because it was just so depressed and exhausted, getting my adrenals supported, balancing my hormones and building this base of resiliency back in me. Like at that point I joked about being a fragile flower because anything was tipping me off. Having one glass of wine, the weather all of a sudden getting colder. Like I felt like a little teeny flower that like a cold breeze comes by and just smushes it. And that was me, which was so humbling from being this athlete that I could do any physical exercise I wanted to and probably do it pretty well and overcome this, that, and the other thing. And I just was this teeny little flower. So the last year actually has mostly been spent, I guess to go like high level, rebuilding my body because we needed to build that foundation first to stand on. And there was a lot of like, try this, it doesn't work, try this. We did like high dose vitamin IVs, there was some we tried that sent me spiraling in a horribly bad way, and then we had to pivot. I've been doing a lot of one of the biggest things that has helped me, and, and I would say too for anyone, if they have Lyme that's listening, that it seems that everybody's journey is different and things, different things are going to work for different people's bodies. But for me, ozone therapy helped. And so that's where you get an IV and they take about a pint of your blood out. It's different in the US and Canada. They take about a pint of your blood out and then they pump ozone into it, which is O3. So it's like a more concentrated version of oxygen. And it's cool to see it takes your dark red blood and turns it the brightest red. And so it super oxygenates your blood because I was having trouble like getting oxygenated blood in my body. And then it also, in the blood, anything that it touches, it's like antiviral and antibacterial. So it'll kill those co-infections in your blood that need to go away. And it also stimulates glutathione production in your body, which is your top like antioxidant, and it just boosts up your immune system. So that's a treatment that actually made me feel better, whereas a lot of the other treatments, they were like helping, but made me feel worse. So I started on like herbal protocol of using really strong herbs and working with an herbalist to deal with all the co-infections first, because when you get Lyme, you typically get other infections at the same time. So mycoplasm, echovirus, different viruses you get at the same time, and that can be really key in helping people get better. So it was kill those other viruses to support your immune system, build up the rest of your body to gain some strength back. Because she was like, if you don't have any strength and resilience in you, 
you can't fight Lyme. And she's like, this is a super confusing bug. It's super smart. It's super tricky. There's no one path forward here. So let's go about getting you the strongest, most balanced body we can so that then your body can handle the treatment and can do what it's meant to do. Let's, your immune system is meant to keep these bugs under control, to suppress them, to get rid of them. So let's try and get your body there. And so I actually feel like about the last year, that's what I was doing. And it's been a road of many ups and downs, like one hell of a roller coaster. But I am now at a place where I do actually feel stronger. Um, my brain is clearer. I have a little bit more energy to do some exercise. Like I've done some baby hikes this summer, which is huge for me. And my personality seems to have returned a bit. And I just have a bit more energy and resilience. And so just about a month ago is when we then were kind of at the point of starting twofold One, I found out that I have something called SIRS, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is quite common in people that have a chronic illness. You've just been chronically unwell for so long that a lot of your body systems, like your immune system or your nervous system, get just completely out of whack. And they they just keep you inflamed and in these broken loops in your body. So it was that luckily has a path and a protocol to get better from. So on that, and I've actually just about a month ago started actual targeted Lyme treatment with herbs. Wow. So you're doing a number of things, obviously, like healing from a chronic illness is a journey. You know, it's not just a simple answer and and it's done and you're healed. And as you said, it's different for different people with Lyme. You know, different things could work better than others. And for you, the ozone therapy, I've heard a lot about that, like on other podcasts. I don't know if you listen to like the balanced blonde. Yes, I love her stuff. And I love hearing her. Yeah, I first heard about ozone therapy through her and her journey with healing her Lyme. So so that's interesting that that helps people. But when you explained it, that makes sense, like cleaning your blood and making sure you're giving that oxygen back to your body that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there's multi prongs that work, right? And Again, I had to realize forming that team, who's my professional team before these doctors are going to fit for me. And like I tried some doctors that just were not a fit for me and didn't, weren't part of that team. So I had to first find that team. And then again, same as like that injury, who else is on my support system? Who's, I mean, my mom came to all my doctor's appointments with me for like the first seven months, probably because I had such bad brain fog. I couldn't remember what people said. And that being a support person, who are the friends I can call that understand I can't go on hikes anymore. I can't do the same things we used to do. Who's that team? And then another big part of healing is the self-work. And that has been mind-blowing to me. Lime really forced me to get, I kind of say it forced me to get solo and silent and still. I was never still in my life. I was always busy in sport, definitely before I hurt myself. I was, don't deal with your emotions, shove them down as far as you possibly can. And I thought when you just shoved your emotions down, they just went down and out and then they were gone. (laughs) And turns out that's not how emotions work. You know, and I just made myself, I just coped with emotions by being busier and being around people and doing more things. And all of a sudden, Lyme forced me to... I was alone a lot of the time 
and I'm just sitting there in silence meditating and I had to be still because I couldn't do any of the activities anymore. All I could do was walk alone, quietly in nature, which was absolute hell for me for a while. And now I'm starting to see the glimmers again of being a little bit grateful for those opportunities because the amount of things I've learned about myself and I've unpacked about myself. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely learned some, it sounds like some really valuable life lessons. And, you know, even though you've had to face a lot of obstacles and adversity and all kinds of things you never thought you'd have to deal with in your life, you've learned from it. And it's just so great to hear that, like, you're now on a good track. You know, obviously, you're still on your healing journey, but it sounds like you're in a much, much, much better place than you were a year ago. So I'm excited, you know, maybe we can do this again, do a part two next year and see where you are in your journey and kind of, you know, follow you along on your path. I think that would be really, really cool. Yeah, I would love to because I definitely feel like it's interesting you say that. I feel like I've kind of hit this point now. You're right. One, I feel better than I have in probably four years even though I still have a long ways to go and I'm still working through the invisibility of it on how some days I can feel so great and smiley and energetic and good. And then the next day out of nowhere, I'm crushed again. And that's just my reality and battling through that invisibility of it. And that a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people don't understand the fact that just because I'm positive doesn't mean I'm better, which has been tough. But yeah, gosh, I feel like I'm finally at this moment of just learning all of the lessons through this and starting to feel the slightest glimmer, like I said, of like gratitude and empowerment from it. And I just, I just know I'm going to get better. I've taken that mindset. I don't think of anything else. It's tough knowing that I don't know when, you know, it's like being on running a marathon and saying like, okay, great. I know I'm on this marathon, but am I at kilometer five or 25 right now? And I'm really not sure, but yeah, hell yeah. Let's do a part two. And hopefully in a year I'll have more positive things, I guess, to talk about or negative lessons or whatnot. I'm sure there'll be something. Yeah, for sure. And before we wrap up, I I do want to kind of talk about your day-to-day now. You're a plant-based chef. I'm sure, you know, COVID has impacted you in some way in terms of what you're doing, but what, what's like your day-to-day life now as a plant-based chef? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I think COVID has affected all of us in unique and difficult ways. I lost a lot of work and contracts and pieces like that as well. I do a lot of pieces. I kind of already worked from home, which solely due to the fact with Lyme, right? I had to be home a lot. I couldn't hold a normal job. I didn't have that much energy. So I did a lot of like recipe development with brands, um, recipe testing, recipe photography, like food photography, all these things that I really loved. And then working again with individuals and organizations, whether it was speaking with my story or talking about food or pairing them together, which is the most fun for me. And now I'm really going down that path a lot more. So I have a few like free recipe ebooks that I've put out. And then I also have my newest one that's out called Feel Good Treats, which 
I love treats. I love dessert. I think dessert is important to have and treats are important to have. Especially during this time, we're all so stressed with the world. We need treats, people. But I'm also a firm believer in you should be able to have treats and dessert and still feel great and still feel awesome afterwards and still wake up the next day feeling great and reach your goals. So they're all of my favorites. There are 27 recipes that are vegan and gluten-free and refined sugar-free that gosh, I think they're so delicious. And all my recipe testers think they're really delicious. So I'm super excited for people to get to start enjoying some of these recipes and foods that have super helped me on my journey of healing and health. And hopefully it brings them some happiness and health too. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. I was just about to ask you to tell everyone about your new ebook. Um, It sounds amazing. And you actually sent me a copy and I looked through it and I was drooling. I mean, everything in there was like, so me and like the same kind of recipes that I would put out, like very like clean, but still yummy. I think sometimes they're like healthy desserts that just like don't look good, but these look amazing. Like you have like a really yummy looking Snickers, vegan Snickers in there that I know I'm going to be making. But as you said, everything's vegan, gluten-free, refined, sugar-free, but still looks like super yummy. So if you guys want some healthy dessert recipes, then they have to check out your ebook. And where can they buy the ebook? Yes. So on my website, which is ariannejones.com, or if you're cruising Instagram right now, um, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm just at Arianne Jones, and it will have all the information there too in my posts or my bio, um, one of the two. And yeah, I'm such a big believer like you are. We love healthy food, but I just believe that eating healthy should still taste incredible and make you happy because food should make you happy. For sure. And we were talking before this how we both think healthy eating is fun because it really is. Like I wake up every day like excited to make a new kind of breakfast or a new kind of smoothie. Like I'll lay in bed at night thinking about what my breakfast is going to be. <laughs> Me too. Literally like I, I think I posted a quote that was like sleeping is just like a time machine to breakfast. But like I really believe that I get so excited to like cook and make healthy meals and you know I'm not a chef I didn't go to culinary school but I love like just getting in the kitchen cooking and even though like I post recipes um you you don't know this about me but like I hate measuring I just kind of like freestyling it in the kitchen just like throwing things together like I post recipes for other people but when I personally cook I'm not following any kind of recipe um and I just like it's nice to talk to someone who also has fun in the kitchen. A hundred percent. I'm on the same philosophy as you. And same thing. I don't use recipes for myself a lot. It's really, I think there's such a great way to start. And I love providing that for people. But then I love also being able to take people on a journey of empowering them with all of this food knowledge so that people can get to that point as well of giving people confidence in the kitchen with their like food choices, health nutrition choices to just be able to freestyle a little bit depending on what you want, what you feel because I think that's a really empowering place to be in. Yes, and I know a lot of people they ask me, they're like, you know, I'll post something super simple like like a Mexican bowl or something and they ask me for the recipe. I'm like, "Look, I just threw this thing together. It's a little bit of salsa, some brown rice, some black beans." I'm like, "Don't worry so much about the 
you know, the exact measurements, like baking is where you have to worry about the science of actually measuring things. But when you're cooking, if you just like relax, have a good time and also just like practice, like you'll kind of figure out how to cook and how to make things and like taste things as you go. Like I always say, like start off with like a little bit of seasoning, taste it and then adjust along the way. Like it really is like just practice and like you don't wake up knowing how to be a chef. Like it just, it, and how to and how to cook it it does it does take a little bit of experience in the kitchen time in the kitchen and not to take it too seriously like just have fun with it a hundred percent and I think that maybe is one of the silver linings that is available to us through this pandemic is that we all have a lot more time at home to make food and feed our families and so you can then cook with your roommate partner family whoever's around and sit down and eat dinner together. And I think it's offered us that silver lining where more people are embracing slow food and just fueling your body. And what I love about food as well is it brings people together. And so you can enjoy a meal around the table with friends or family and it nourishes your body and it also just nourishes your soul with that storytelling and connection. And I think that's really beautiful. Amen to that. Now I have a couple questions just to wrap this up that I ask every single guest. These are just more like fun, get to know you questions. So are you ready? Ready. Okay. What would your last meal on earth be? Like a really, really good coffee and like super good sourdough bread like some olives and some fermented veggies, like just a meze powder of like incredible food. That sounds lit. I would just love that. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, okay. And what's one thing you can't live without in your morning routine? So this sounds really cliche to say coffee, but not for the reason you might think. So I love coffee for its taste and it's so delicious and I love good coffee, but every morning I, especially through this last period of time in spring and summer, and I've been home a ton during COVID, is every morning I get up and I make my coffee, which is a beautiful routine in itself, and I add some superfood mushrooms to it, which I'm obsessed with, and then I sit outside in this little sunbeam in my backyard, in my garden, and I read a little bit, and I write in my journal, and I feel the sun on me, and I enjoy my coffee, and that little 45 minutes is very sacred to me. Yeah, well, that's more about the experience surrounding your coffee, which sounds really, really nice. Exactly. What is something quirky about you that people would be surprised to find out? I think people think I'm really, because I am really like organized and perfectionistic tendencies, but I feel like those in my life are in place to allow me to go be spontaneous and to stop everything and have a kitchen dance party and that life is 80 20 and sometimes it's fine to have chips for dinner with no guilt and just move on i like that (laughs) we um we used to have this little vegan gelato place right by our apartment and sometimes we would just be like you know what we're having gelato for dinner (laughs) oh you gotta do it sometimes and when you do it firm believer of just no guilt like just lean in and enjoy every second of that totally um if you had to pick one form of exercise to do for the rest of your life what would you choose and why swimming i love the water 
in every way, shape, and form. And swimming is something that's very meditative for me. And I'm very sad that the pools have been closed for so long because I miss it a lot. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I feel like swimming is like very easy on your body and like very nice to your joints. And like, even if like you're sore from weightlifting or something, like just going in the water and swimming is like very, very soothing. Exactly. You can go hard and get an incredible workout or you can go gentle and it's just very meditative. It's quiet. It's very gentle on my spine and my body, which I need. Yes, for sure. And what is your favorite grocery store? The farmer's market. It, especially right now, it's the middle of summer. Um, I'm in BC, which is kind of like the California fruit of the US. And there's just so many. I put my mask on, I go to the farmer's market, and I'm like a kid in the candy shop of just armloads of peaches and microgreens and everything right now. So I'm leaning in hard to farmer's market life and eating super local and super seasonal. I love that. And I have to tell you, I am a sucker for a good farmer's market. There's something just so much more fun about shopping, like seeing all the beautiful fruits and vegetables and like shopping like local and organic. And it's just like so much more rewarding. I don't know why, but that that's a unique answer. So far, everyone, you know, everyone has like their Whole Foods answer and they say Trader Joe's or something like that. But I like that. I, I also really love a farmer's market. Okay. I have one more thing, which is would you rather foodie edition? So this is just like, would you rather eat this or that? Are you ready? Okay. Peanut butter or almond butter? Almond butter. Pasta or pizza? Pizza. Cookies or brownies? Cookies. Spinach or kale? Kale. Pancakes or waffles? Ooh, waffles all the way. One of my best friends says, all great days begin with waffles. I like that quote. <laughs> Smoothie or juice? Smoothie. Hot fudge or caramel? Caramel. Lemon or lime? Lemon all the way. Hummus or guac? Hummus. Pesto or marinara sauce? Ooh, pesto. A thousand percent pesto. Oh, I know. Pesto's so good. But yeah, that's it. That's Would You Rather Foodie Edition. Thanks for playing. <laughs> hey, I, that's my favorite game show so far. Yeah, that's like my favorite thing to do with guests. Well, this has been so, so fun. I could talk to you all day. We have so much in common. You are just like such a bright light. I loved hearing your story. And I know everyone else is also going to really enjoy learning about you and your incredible life so far and everything that you have to offer. And like, you're so pretty. Like, I wish everyone could look at you. You're just like, like you look like an angel. <laughs> okay. You're very sweet. Thank, Thank you. you. This is awesome. Where can everyone find you on social media? I know you said it before, but let's just say it again. Yeah. So social media, um, my main place of hangout is Instagram and I'm at Arianne Jones. And as well, you can find me my website, ariannejones.com. That'll have all of the fun goodies and online courses that I'm working on right now that I'm really, really excited about. Very cool. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll see you for part two. Can't wait. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>